It was the ups and the downs. It was the constant, won't take his medication. It was the landlord calling me that she's going to probably have to evict him because he's running outside naked or he's saying people are chasing him and he's scaring the other residents. Michelle Gonzalez-Reed is a clinical therapist, a mental health advocate, and a mother to her son, Dejon, who as a teenager was diagnosed with the devastating illness of schizophrenia. And knowing that if he got evicted, it would be difficult for me to keep him stabilized and not have the younger boy scared in the house and have him here, that there wasn't a lot of places to go. There was no other support. And I had already went through the system, but they kept releasing him. So I felt like I was out of options. I I was just limited in every way. And I just didn't know what to do anymore. Today on the show, Michelle is sharing her journey of getting her beloved son the care he needed to survive. We're sharing what you need to know about navigating the system and why early diagnosis of severe mental illness is so critical. I'm Kimmy Culp, and this is All the Wiser, a show about hope and possibility on the other side of pain. I started kind of young. I was 21 um, when I got married, and I had Dejan when I was 28. I wanted to be the best mom. I wanted to be present. I wanted to have happy memories that I could look back on and cherish forever. And I do have many of them. I wanted my kids to be successful, you know, obviously, and be happy and fulfill their dreams. Tell me about Dejan's entrance into the world and what you remember about having him and who he was as a young boy. I remember being in the hospital, you know, having Dijon and when he was born, holding him for the first time. Dijon was very much a mother's boy <laughs> from the very beginning. He wanted to be with me all the time. I had two older uh, kids, which were both girls, but he wanted to be with me all the time. He was very creative. He used to write stories. Uh, he was very much into the superhero stories. So he would write his own stories and make up his own superpowers. He wanted to sing. He wanted to be an actor. And he was very gifted and talented in mimicking others. So um, he could do different voices. He was a very, hum- you know, had everybody laughing. <laughs> everybody was laughing because he was very comical. Do you have any favorite memories during this time that just, even the, the most simple, sweet ones that I imagine you do have, if you can share to sort of bring him to life for us? I do. Um, sorry, I got a little teary-eyed when you asked me that. I have many good memories of him because, as I said, we were very close And we went everywhere, but uh, some of the best memories are he would just want to go to the store with me, you know, and we would be listening to music in the car and being silly and dancing. I would have this thing where the music come on and I'd start doing my eyebrow and he'd laugh. (laughs) Going to Blockbuster on a Friday night because he loved renting movies and he had a huge movie collection. So every Friday I'd take him there. I was a single parent, so... 
you know, finances were were tight, but that would be our thing. You know, we'd go there, we'd rent movies and we'd veg out and watch movies and eat and laugh. And we did that every weekend. You know, there's something so special about mother-son relationships. And Mm -hmm. it's clear to me what a mama's boy he was and, and how much joy he brought you as a mom. He really did. Um, as a single parent, it was hard. And I didn't have a lot of family because my mom died when I was young. And I didn't really have extended family either. So Dijon was like a cheerleader to me, you know. And I remember at times I might be crying because I had bills to pay or things to do. And he would tell me, it's going to be okay, mama. And at what point did you start to have concerns about his well-being, his mental health? What were some of the first indicators to you? He didn't start showing signs until he was like 15. He started getting depressed to the point where he wouldn't get out of the bed. What was going through your mind? I mean, experiencing watching your son, who it sounds like was, you know, thriving to some extent, and Mm -hmm. then seeing the depression? What was your experience? You know, I kept asking him what was wrong. You know, did something happen? And but he just it started like slowly, like he would take walks and just tell me he had a lot on his mind. And he really didn't like to tell me things that bothered him. So if he had a problem, he wanted to solve it on his own, even if I asked. I think he felt like, you know, my mom's a single parent. She's been through a lot. And I'm just going to handle this problem, you know, which I really didn't like. I wanted him to tell me, but he wouldn't tell me what was wrong. So he would take walks. And I think that would be his way of thinking or. And then he started like just being in his room started like isolating. Like I try to get him to come out and he wouldn't. So I was really, really kind of lost, feeling lost in that time, not understanding what was going on. And then what was the progression, you know, after the depression and he starts therapy? How do things begin to evolve from there? Well, at first it looked like the early indicators of depression, but it started getting very severe. So sleeping in the bed for days, me trying to get him up, encouraging him to go places with me. And sometimes as it progressed, you know, showering and eating became very uh, difficult. So, you know, practicing his ADLs, like trying to get him up, come on, go take a shower. And I'd have to bring the food in there because he literally wouldn't get up and eat. And it got to the place where, like, he wanted me to call the ambulance and the ambulance would come get him and he'd go to the hospital. But by midnight, they'd be letting him out. And I think after so many times of that, he started seeing that he wasn't getting the help he needed. So was he going to the hospital? Was he having panic attacks or what was he experiencing? That he didn't feel good. Like he he started saying that he needed help. And, you know, like, again, he wouldn't tell me a lot. He just said that he didn't feel good mentally. So clearly major depression, which had to be heartbreaking for Mm -hmm. you to watch When do things really start to escalate beyond the depression? 
I would say between like 16 years old to 18, I started to notice different things about his personality started disintegrating. And like he started having like hearing voices and, you know, I'd be sitting in the kitchen and he'd come in and say, did you call my name? And I'll say no. And he'll go back out on the patio because he used to like to sit in the backyard. And he'd come back in a few minutes later. You didn't call my name. And I say no. That's when I started noticing that he was hearing voices it you know progressed from there. He started telling me that people were talking to him through the television and the doctors were just saying that it was psychosis, which I know the mark is the six month mark, you know, for schizophrenia, but it was more than that before they even diagnosed him. Technically before that, it's just considered like a psychosis, you know, and I think part of the reasons is they don't want to just slap it on somebody, you know, so to speak. And it's it's really it's a situation where, you know, there's no cure for schizophrenia and making a full recovery to back to the normal functioning is only about 15 percent. So people want to be sure, I think, you know, physicians, medical professionals, they want to be sure that that's exactly what it is. And there's a low percentage of people that actually get on medication and are able to have a meaningful, satisfying life, you know in the absence of symptoms, but then there's this huge other population and and amount of percentage that they continue to decompensate. And suicide also plays a really major role with people that have schizophrenia. So I would imagine with the psychosis, well, it sounds like intuitively you knew that it was more than that, that there is some hope that he will come out of it versus the schizophrenia which you have said is a devastating prognosis. Yes. Yeah. So the six-month mark comes. When does he receive that official diagnosis? And how are you thinking about his future at that time, having this piece of information and understanding sort of your likely reality as a mother and and for him as a person moving forward. Yeah, it wasn't until he was closer to 18 years of age that he got that, which is really unbelievable considering how long he had had it. And I knew we were in a lot of trouble when he had went up to see my younger daughter, who is two years older than him, and she lives in San Francisco. And he went up to spend the week with her. She lived on the 11th floor. And he tried to jump out of the building. And he was hospitalized on a 5150 there. That was the mark of when everything went from bad to worse. And I was very afraid because I hadn't really had anybody in my family with that diagnosis. And obviously, I didn't have a lot of family. So I was afraid. I didn't know about it. And I didn't know how bad it could get. And I know I knew what the percentages were, and I knew there was a good chance that he might not get better. My hopes at that time was to try to stabilize him on the medication, that he would have some kind of quality of life. But that was kind of like a hit and miss. There were moments where he seemed to be pretty stabilized to a degree, even though he wasn't back to the same levels of functioning that he had been previously. But then he would he would fall off of that. Because Dijon's mental health was in such a severe decline, he wasn't able to finish high school 
Michelle had to put him in a different type of school where you stay home and do the work and then you go to a physical school one day a week and turn in your assignments. But due to his depression and other factors, he wasn't able to focus and couldn't keep up. And a point of explanation for those who have never heard the term 5150. 5150 is a legal action from the California Welfare and Institutions Code. It allows a qualified officer or clinician to confine someone experiencing a mental health crisis against their will for up to 72 hours. They evaluate if the person is a danger to themselves or others, or if they are gravely disabled, meaning they are unable to care for themselves. So as this is all happening, and I've interviewed a fair amount of people and parents who had children living with a mental illness, living with addiction, and there's this notion of almost grieving the loss of somebody who is standing right in front of you yes. um, and is still there because the Dejan you so beautifully illustrated at the beginning is vanishing before your eyes, although he is still physically present. Was yes. that the experience for you? Definitely. It was like the death, but they're, you're looking right at them because you, their personality is gone. They're not the same person. You almost, like with me and Dijon, it's like I became the enemy. He didn't want me to have access to his medical records. He didn't want, and you know, we went from being super close to being like, I was the enemy. And sometimes I couldn't say anything right. I couldn't do anything right. And he was always angry at me, no matter what I did. It was really hard because... I was trying to do everything I could, but even that would make him angry because he had the condition, you know, anisognosia, where he had no insight into his mental illness. And so he didn't think he was sick. And so if I try to tell him, you know, you need to take your medication or this, he took that and he would get angry. I don't need medication. You know, why do you keep telling me I need medication? I was fascinated by that aspect of it. So I'd never heard a description of anisognosia. I knew that, that that happened, but I didn't have the language to describe it. So okay. can you explain more about what that is? Yes. It's a condition that is found in people that have schizophrenia and bipolar, and it can be present with other diagnoses such as like Alzheimer's or dementia, in which a person is very sick and has the lack of insight into the severity of their symptoms, and they begin to refuse treatment. And the way the LPS Act works, it's a forced to a degree where you're taken in to the hospital and you're kept there. You can't leave. But up until that point, if you don't want treatment, nobody's going to make you. But then you decompensate and you go into the hospital and then they release you because all they're going to do is basically get you to a, a baseline where, you know, you're stabilized and they're going to release you. And then you're back out and you're not getting treatment because nobody can make you get treatment. And so people are cycling in and out of prisons and the streets. Yes. And devastating as a mother, because all you want to do is support him and mm -hmm. provide for him to be as safe and well as possible. And at 18, suddenly you have no right to his medical records. I mean, yes. you really lose control at that point, even mm -hmm. though 18 to me does not 
you know, still feels like a baby to some extent. Yes. Um, certainly, I imagine he was in your eyes. Mm-hmm. And then this added layer of him literally not having the awareness. So any hospital or hold he gets at, he can just say, I'm not sick. Yeah. And he would and he would do that really frequently and tell them, you know, he wouldn't sign a release. And by law, you know, you call the hospitals and I would every time he got hospitalized and say, I know you can't talk to me. You don't have a release, but by law, you have to listen to me. And so they do have to listen to you. So one of the parts of advocacy is is calling and advocating and telling them what's going on because they're not going to tell them. Did with him particularly and these the diagnosis or the series of diagnosis, had he been diagnosed earlier mm-hmm. so you could have come in with earlier interventions, mm-hmm. would that have made a potential difference? I think so, because then at least I would have known what I was up against. And that's the other thing about waiting to diagnose people, you know, and I do kind of get that part because even though it's six months, you do, sometimes it's hidden. So certain signs will show up at certain places. And and so, you know, certain, if you had circles, you know, if you had a chart with circles that interlap circles and, you know, you have depression, anxiety, or, you know, bipolar, well, these certain things overlap into other symptoms. So that's how the DSM is. And, and so you got to kind of tease it out. Okay, well, is it this or is it that? You know, well, he's not showing these symptoms, but he is showing that, you know. So I don't know if it was a situation like that, but certainly I feel that if we had known early on, I think a difference could have been made. Yes, these diagnoses are very complex and layered. Mm-hmm. Yes, that all of what you just said makes sense to me. So as you're navigating the healthcare system down to calling the hospitals and just asking, mm-hmm. demanding to be heard. Mm-hmm. Did you find allies? Did you find compassion as he became an adult and suddenly you have no control and to some extent are mm-hmm. viewed as an outsider? I did. I, I had a few, but for the most part, most of the people, you know, the psychiatrists and staff at the hospitals, the psych hospitals, understood and knew how sick Dijon was. And they were in favor of him being held. The issue is that with the LPS Act, a doctor can recommend that a patient be held, but it's ultimately up to a judge. And so what happens is people go to court and they're medicated, they're stabilized, they've been in the hospital for, you know, 15 days, 30 days, and and so they're stabilized. And so they go in and the judge says, oh, he's fine, and he lets them go. And that happens so many times where the psychiatrist was saying he needed treatment, but the judge kept letting them go. Yeah, so he's doing well, or at least well enough to present in front of a judge because mm-hmm. he's been on medication and there's been structure, mm-hmm. and now he is out with none of that. Right. In reading about your story and your journey, he begins to really go missing at times and be in and out of your day-to-day life. Mm-hmm. So what was that chapter like, if you can explain what was happening? Well, he... He started, you know, using marijuana very heavily and he started drinking and I have two young boys. So 
um, he was, you know, living in my house and I had to put boundaries in place and he didn't like that. So he wanted to move out and I was totally against it because I felt he was too unstable. And so he moved out into a roommate and well, the roommate was a sheriff. So I thought, okay, well, there'll be some structure there, you know? Yeah. And so everything was fine for a couple of months, but then it started going really bad. And this is kind of where everything started really falling apart. Apparently he was drinking and being up at all times of the night. He was leaving the stove on. He was running out in the street naked. He was threatening the neighbors. And so obviously they wanted him out and um, there was a lot of altercations, mostly verbal, but he wanted Dijon out of the house, which I understood. And so there would be times that I would be really worried because I didn't know where he was and there would be nothing I could do about it because he's an adult. But during that time is when I started really just calling the police department over and over and over. And whenever I knew that it was really bad over there, it got to the point where I believe it was like a sergeant or something. He called me and said, what is going on? Like, I have all these calls for welfare checks and what's happening. And I explained the situation. I said, I just want my son to get help. That's all. And so they finally sent out a county social worker and they took him and he did get temporary conservatorship that time. But then it got up to the permanent conservatorship. And again, the judge said he presented well and they let him go. You know, the fact that you were parenting two young kids at this time, Mm -hmm. well, emotionally, mentally, physically, I, I can only imagine the energy it took, the exhaustion, the heartbreak. What was that like for you to show up for your little guys while trying to help your son who was in the throes of mental illness. It's just hard to envision a day in your life during this time. Well, it was it was pretty rough. You know, I want to note that I love them no less, but my two little ones are adopted. I've had them since they were one month and two month old. And so they're now 10 and 11. But Trying to be a parent, a single parent, working full time. I was working with county at that time. So, you know, it's leaving the house at 6 a.m., dropping my kids, driving to another city nearby to be to work. So a, a short commute, getting off, picking up my kids and then going straight to my son's house, Dijon's house, to making sure that he's cleaning and that he's eating and just checking in on him and then getting home and bathing my kids and making sure their homework is done and not getting to bed until really late. On the weekends, I would go and get Dijon and bring him over to spend time with him and and try to do some of the things that we used to do, like watch movies or take the kids to the park. But oftentimes that was interrupted by some of Dijon's instability. One time we went to the park and everything was fine. Um, at the time, I was Dejan's payee, and he wanted money. I was his SSI payee, and, and I wouldn't give it to him because I knew he was going to buy, you know, marijuana or alcohol. And so he started yelling and screaming at the park. The park is full of people and families and kids, and my kids are scared. So I had to literally leave him there. And that park was not too far from where he lived, so he was 
within walking distance, but still he's severely mentally ill. So I had to make the choice whether to take the little kids out of the way and leave my son there. But I had to do what I had to do. So it was often times where, again, like when I let him move out, it's like I didn't want him to go because I really didn't feel like he would be safe. But then I had to make a decision because I had two kids here that I can't have marijuana and drinking in my house, you know. So it was just I was exhausted. My supervisors were upset because, you know, I would have to take time off to make sure my son got to his medication appointments or I had to go check on him or something would happen. And and the reality is that he had county services and a case manager, but that was basically like having nothing. You know, they'd go pick Dejan up for his medication appointment and Dejan would hear voices, you know, so he wouldn't respond to the doorbell sometimes, you know. And so if he wasn't opening the door right away, they'd leave and he'd miss his medication appointment and he wouldn't have medication. So I couldn't have that. I had to leave and go take him to his medication appointment. So the support was was lacking severely and I was exhausted. I look back on it and and I just, I don't even, it's just like a blur. I feel like I didn't do good enough. I didn't, you know, I didn't do enough. You know, it's like, you feel like nothing is never enough because obviously you want to save your son. Well, it is so clear you gave every single ounce of yourself and your love and you were certainly heroic as I think about you during that chapter showing up for all three kids. Thank you. Coming up, the reality of Dejan's illness sets in and a judge's decision to remove his conservatorship has dire consequences. We'll be right back. All the Wiser is a one-for-one podcast. For every story you hear, we donate $2,000 to our guest favorite charity. Today's conversation with Michelle supports the Jed Foundation. Jed is a nonprofit that protects the emotional health and prevents suicide for our nation's teens and young adults. They give them the skills and support they need to thrive today and tomorrow. You can learn more at jedfoundation.org or find them on social media at Jed Foundation. All the Wiser membership is live. If you love this podcast and are inspired by the stories we share, this is for you. We want to get to know you and we want you to know us. There'll be Zooms with me and the All The Wiser team. I'll be sending voice memos with my own thoughts, ideas, and inspiration right after I record a guest. You'll receive our episodes early and ad-free. You can have your name and producer credit added to the wall on our website. There will be video content and you can even drop in to a live recording of A Little Wiser. You can learn more and join the membership by going to our website, allthewiserpodcast.com. Look for our link and Instagram at allthewiserpodcast or scroll down in your show notes where it says become a member. You can also make a one-time contribution by making a custom pledge in the link below.
One of the things, as you well know, but I'm interested in hearing how it played out for you, is that mental illness, as opposed to perhaps a mother who has a child who has cancer or has a physical difference, Mm -hmm. is there is a lot of shame, of misunderstanding, I think sometimes even judgment. Mm -hmm. That piece of being the mother of a son who was living with a severe mental illness, was any of that what I just discussed, the Mm -hmm. the shame, the judgment mirrored back at you? Mm -hmm. It was. I really believe that Dijon had the symptoms longer than anyone else knew, and he certainly tried to hide it as long as he could. I just remember people making him the brunt of jokes, people treating him like he is his illness, which was really hurtful to me because I knew the wonderful person that he was and labeling him like he's crazy. Or, you know, I'd have certain people say to me, well, he's just he's just being lazy. He just needs to get up and, do, you know, they don't understand mental illness. It's like he's not being lazy. He's sick. Did you have glimpses during this time of the old Dijon, the healthy, Mm -hmm. vibrant, or does it become where it's just completely a consistent new reality? You know, he was. He he did show up sometime. He had the canatonia withdrawn type of schizophrenia where there's like sometimes limited responses or there's no response to what's happening around him or he's kind of mute or his emotions or facial expressions are like, he's just holding completely still or staring. So that happened a lot. And sometimes even mid-sentences when he'd talk to you, sometimes he'd just stop and start staring. But every now and then he would tell a dry humor joke. Like he had really dry humor and maybe me and my daughter would be sitting there and he'll just all of a sudden say something and it'd be really funny, you know? And you could tell that he was in there. You know, you talked about your hopes and dreams early on as a mother, that your kids would find happiness and success and joy and all of these things that mothers wish for. Mm -hmm. As this new reality sets in, what is your hope for him? Because you obviously realize that the future you envisioned as a little boy is not feasible. So what did you think would be the best outcome, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's I was looking for the baseline. You know, we call it the baseline. So it's they're on medication. They're stabilized. I asked him numerous times if he would go to a rehabilitation program for, you know, the alcohol and marijuana use. But he refused. I had hoped that he would get sober, that he would be stable on his medication and I knew that I would have to continue to assist him in many things, but that would have been, you know, completely fine. It was just the ups and the downs. It was the constant, won't take his medication. It was the landlord calling me that she's going to probably have to evict him because he's running outside naked or he's saying people are chasing him and he's scaring the other residents. And knowing that if he got evicted, it would be difficult for me to keep him stabilized and not have the younger boy scared in the house and have him here. 
that there wasn't a lot of places to go. There was no other support. And I had already went through the system, but they kept releasing him. So I felt like I was out of options. I I was just limited in every way. And I just didn't know what to do anymore. But I had hoped if I could have had it the way I wanted it, it would have been, he would have been at a baseline. He would have been here living with me. So at this point, the system is failing. It is yes. not set up for success. It's not. The day after he got out of being temporarily conserved, first he went to a clinic, a nearby clinic. This doctor didn't know. He just was released. And of course, he was presenting very well at that point because he had been medicated for, he had been in the hospital for several months. And he told him, you know, I just want to be my own payee. And the guy wrote him a letter, didn't even know who he was, wrote him a letter saying he was capable. He went down to SSI. He got me off of being his payee. So then he started getting his own money, which I knew that that was going to be all bad. And I went to SSI three times, spoke to supervisors, got a letter from his, you know, the psychiatrist saying he should not be his own payee. Talked to an SSI representative supervisor who told me that they don't have to go by the doctor's letters. I said, but why wouldn't you? You got a physical doctor of a clinic who seen him one time who says he's good enough, but you have his treating psychiatrist who's telling you he's been in the hospital and he should have been in there, you know, on a permanent conservatorship and he should not be his own payee because it would be to his own detriment. But you're telling me that you would rather listen to the other doctor. I, I don't understand that. It just makes zero sense to me. And I have no leg to stand on. I have no right. I can't do anything. I've talked to different supervisors and they insist that, if he decompensates after he gets this amount of money, well, they'll deal with it then. I said, but then by then he'll be homeless <laughs> and trying to get him an apartment and get him a place. He's on Section 8. Then then how's he going to afford it? You know, there's all these things like, and not only that, I said, he could die. He could die. For those of you who aren't familiar with some of the language you just heard, SSI stands for Supplemental Security Income which is money that's distributed monthly by a Social Security Administration. The payments are provided to those who are permanently disabled. A representative payee is a person who is selected to receive and manage the funds. In Dejan's case, his doctors thought it would be a good idea to make Michelle the payee so that she could pay Dejan's bills and make sure his rent was paid. With Dejan now getting direct access to this money, he began spending it on alcohol and drinking heavily. So when he was released off of the temporary conservatorship by the judge that went against psychiatric recommendations to keep him on a permanent conservatorship, I got him into Section 8 apartment, which was not easy. The day that it was time for him to go to the Section 8, he was running from me. I was trying to get him in the car. He was running down the street. It was like within the week that he was out, he had been 5150 like three times. And of course, they let him go. They usually do. But I was just trying to keep him stable. And he was just just running wild. So anyway, we got him into the apartment. And I, I was like, on, I'm on a wing and a prayer here because I know he's unstable. And he was in the apartment and it seemed like for the month, first month and a half, he was kind of distracted with, I guess, maybe enjoying his apartment. You know, <laughs> I don't know. He would be in there and things were semi quiet, like maybe it might could be a little bit normal. But then 
I don't know, it just got worse from there. And he was drinking heavily. You know, I'd come and get him for his medication appointment sometimes. And he'd tell me, no, he's not going. And he closed the door in my face. Um, you know, again, I'm getting the calls from the landlord. Uh, the neighbors downstairs, I guess, were complaining. And it was just, it was just, it was a hit and miss. Like there'd be days and a week or so he'd be seemingly, he'd be okay. But then it would just go off the rails again. My younger daughter was getting married. And so I said, why don't you just come to the house and stay here? I would try to get him to come to my house, even though he had his apartment, just so he could be with us, you know, and he seemed to be okay. He would have moments, you know, obviously, but we were working with it. And then he kept saying, I, I want to go back to my house. And I'm like, why? Just stay here. Just stay here, you know, and I would go to work. Well, he kept going back and forth, back and forth. So he was really, really restless. And the last time I seen him, he had called me and asked me, he sounded like really unstable. You know, he, I could tell he had been drinking really heavily. And I said, okay, I'll come get you. And I brought him to my house and he was just kind of like all over the place. And then he started, you know, telling me, take me home, take me home, you know, because I was telling him to settle down and go to bed. It was late by that time, and I was really exhausted. I had to go to work the next day. So I said, okay, I'll take you home. And so he was really angry with me the last time I saw him, and and I always have to sit with that memory. But it wasn't nine months after he had been released from that temporary conservatorship that he was killed on the train tracks. He was out there at 4.30 in the morning, and some witnesses say that he was out there screaming for help. From my understanding, the conductor said that he was just standing on the track and they were blowing the horn several times and he would not move. So what do you remember about getting that call and hearing that news? I remember waking up. Um, it was Saturday. I woke up. And um, I looked at my phone and I had some missed calls from like a county number. You know, you can tell what's a county number. And I thought that was odd. And I called it back and it was the sheriff's department. And I said, I had some missed calls from this number. Is everything okay? And the first thing I said was, I have a son who's schizophrenic. Is he okay? Is everything all right? And she said, it's not that. And she says, I'll have somebody call you back. And she hung up. The sheriff was outside, parked outside my community because I live in a gated condominium community. And he called me right after I hung up with her. And he says, I'm here. And is it okay if I come in? I need to talk to you. And I knew at that moment that he was gone because they're not going to come to your house like that. And I remember just being kind of like in a state of shock, in a state of it's, it's almost like I knew it was coming for several months, but I didn't want to believe that it was going to end up that way. And when it was actually really there, it felt very surreal. And I just remember trying to, like, throw something on decent so I can go to the door because I just had got out of the bed. And he got to the door and um, I opened it up and I was just very, like, scattered. And it's like I didn't want to hear the words, but I... I doubled back. I said, I'm going to go grab something. I said, no, never mind. I said, just tell me what it is. Like, I knew what it was. And, and he told me that my son had been killed by a train. And I screamed. 
very loudly. Um, I lost my balance. I almost fainted. I screamed again. And I remember him talking to me like I think they're trained to do that, try to bring you back. <laughs> he says, aren't you this and don't you work there? And I'm just like looking at him like, what? And I live by a train. So as I'm talking to him, I can hear trains going by. just remember just feeling so devastated and for at least 14 months I was kind of going in and out of a depression because I could hear trains going by my house all day and night and I just couldn't believe that he was gone and it's some of the things that you hear when people die like tragically you hear like you think they're going to come running to the door, you know? <laughs> and it's not going to be real. You think they're going to show up, but they don't. And I just couldn't help but keep thinking, like, I should have been there. He needed me, and I wasn't there. What were and are the layers of the grief of losing him? Well, you know, you go through different phases. I think there's a shock and denial and anger. Um, for me, it was a lot of sadness because we were so close and I just felt so... Like, I just kept feeling like I didn't do enough. I should have done this. And you start looking back and you start saying, I should have did this instead of doing that. And maybe if I had done this, he would still be here. And so it had gotten to the place where I can't say I had a lot of anger at anybody else except maybe the system and maybe at myself because I felt like I failed him. I, I cried a lot. I was very withdrawn. I didn't talk to many people. I wanted to be alone. Um, I took care of my kids, and I really don't even remember the year, to be honest with you. I just remember laying down a lot, and I remember praying a lot. And that was a thing that kept me, because I think if it hadn't have been for that, I think I would have checked out. So I think the first 14 months, I was just trying to deal with what actually what happened and just trying to take in everything that I had just dealt with. It was like I had been running for so long and working so hard and just on autopilot. And then everything just came to an end. And then it wasn't the outcome that I wanted. And I was just like blown away, even though I really did sense that he wasn't going to make it. How old were your Boys at the time, your, your younger sons? Let's see. It was 2019, and they're 10 and 11 now. But my younger son, his mental health started suffering. And so I had to also just shake myself because I had to focus on them and take care of them. But 
it was really hard. And we cried together. We grieved together. And oftentimes I felt like at first that I was saving them, but then I realized they were saving me. How was their relationship with their brother? Very close. Very close. Very close. So it was a real big blow to all of us because even though they he had weird behaviors and sometimes the boys kind of look like, okay, you know, they didn't really understand it, but they knew that their brother loved them and they were devastated. They don't know what happened to him because I think that's too much for them, but his death in itself was pretty traumatic for them. Yeah, and you're caring for them as they grieve. You're a grieving mother. You're living with PTSD. I I just can't fathom processing and living with all of that at once. Yeah. How have you been changed as a mother, a therapist, and just a human by loving and losing Dejan, how how are you different than you were before? You know, I love all my kids. I do. But Dejan was, he was just exceptional. He was, he was a light of my life. And he changed me as a person just by loving him and him being in my life. You know, I was still kind of growing up when I had him, you know, I was still young and He just changed me with his love. Like, he was just a loving person. Anybody that knew him, even all the friends that he had that heard about what happened, they were just so devastated because everybody knew how kind and loving he'd give you the shirt off his back. You know, he cared about the homeless. He would do outreach with me um, and feed the homeless. And he cared about people. He was just a genuine, kind, loving person. And being his mom was probably one of the greatest things I've ever done in my life. And that was within itself beautiful because of who he was. It changed me because it called me to a fight that I probably would have never fought. It changed me as a therapist because now I'm also an advocate of mental health care reform. And I think the best memories that I have in my life were just being with him and being his mom And losing him has certainly been the most devastating and most painful event of my life. And I have a lot of trauma myself, but none of that, you know, it pales in comparison to the pain of losing a child. It's unnatural. You know, you're supposed to be gone before they are. And he just deserved so much more because he was just a great person. He he deserved so much more. You're... Your hope, you share your story like you are today with everyone listening. And I know that is driven by your hope for his legacy Mm -hmm. and that other families, other mothers, parents, and their children will potentially have a different outcome. So what is your hope for his legacy and the future of mental health reform. Well, as you said, I you know, I want him I want him to be remembered. I don't want him to be forgotten. I want him to be remembered for the beautiful soul that he was, that that his silent struggle is honored 
and not just his, but so many that struggled the way he had and that I'm able to save lives in his memory because I know that's what he would want me to do. If, if he could tell me something, he'd say, help others. Don't let them go through what I went through. And so if I sat back and, and I just kind of lived my life, I think it would just be like his suffering was in vain. And so there is a lot of uh, healing in me advocating and fighting. And I'm very open about showing his pictures. And, and he has a Facebook page, My Beloved Dijon, and he has the petition, you know, change.org, My Beloved Dijon. But he his story is out there. So you can see his pictures growing up. And because I want to share him with the world, you know, he was just He's just too beautiful to keep to myself. And so it's changed me in the sense that I have this fight in front of me. And as long as I'm fighting it, I know that what happened to both of us, you know, my suffering, but especially his, won't be in vain. What brings you hope? I think some of the recent changes, you know, in the mental health care reform but it's still not enough because as long as we have judges that are overriding psychiatrists' recommendations to treat, you know, the severely mentally ill that are gravely disabled, then we're kind of like going in a circle. How does Dejan show up in your life today? He shows up everywhere <laughs> in the sense that we used to do so many things together that Everything reminds me of him. So food, our favorite restaurants or movies, anything surrounding anything that we used to do, which we pretty much did everything. So it's it's like he's everywhere. You know, I, I think of him all the time. So one of my sons is going to be going to junior high and he's going to be going to the same junior high that Dijon went to. And I remember when I used to drop Dijon off at school, even in the seventh grade, he would I'd be, you know, dropping him off and he'd be waving at me all the way down the block, blowing me kisses. He didn't care about what his friends thought. <laughs> he used to tell everybody, you know, my mom is my best friend. And so, you know, everything I do, everywhere I go, this city was where he was born and raised and we did everything here. So everything reminds me of him. What do you hope people take away from your story? I hope that they can get early treatment for their child by hearing some of the symptoms that Dejan had and being more aware of the signs, that they could be more proactive in getting them help and being more diligent about it, understanding how severe it can get, that, that people would be more aware of the way they treat others, that mental illness doesn't discriminate. It could be anybody. It can happen to anyone. That there is an urgent cry that we need to reform mental health care in California so that we can help the homeless population because a good percentage of them are mentally ill severely. And that they would just remember who he was, you know? Michelle, thank you for sharing your story sharing Dejan with us today and, you know, for all the work you are doing to create change in his honor. Thank you. 
Thank you for having me. According to a recent report by community-based nonprofit Mental Health America, 21% of adults are experiencing a mental illness. That equates to over 50 million Americans. And in the past year, 2.7 million youth reported suffering from at least one major depressive episode. Yet, over half of these people did not seek treatment. Most say they simply could not afford it. Mental health reform continues to be an uphill battle in this country. But please don't give up. Contact your state and local representatives and tell them to push for legislation that will get the services to those who need them most. Together, we can and will make a difference. All the Wiser is produced by Erica Gerard from Podkit Productions. It sure is, Kimmy. But we couldn't do it without our associate producer, Tara Daigle. Aw, thanks, Erica. And I'd be utterly rudderless with nothing to edit or sound design without the lot of you. So until next time. Take care of yourself. And each other. That's right. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.